Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Hello everyone, this is Kennard Brown. I'm your host for the Merciful Servants of God uh, Biblical Instructional Program. Today is May 14th. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the uh, 2011 Mississippi floods in Louisiana. I don't know if uh, anyone, if you've been paying attention, but um, there's some serious issues with um, flooding in the uh, Mississippi area. And over, they're saying that uh, it's going to affect the Louisiana area as well. I'm going to pull this article up on Wikipedia here when I'm talking about it. And uh, it says here, 2011 Mississippi River floods. The Mississippi River floods in April and May 2011 are among the largest and most damaging along the flood-prone U.S. River in the past century. So that, that's a very significant statement there. Uh, it says, comparisons are being drawn with the major lower Mississippi River floods in 1927 and 1933. In April 2011, two major storm systems tracked through much of the vast Mississippi River w- watershed, dumping record rainfall over large areas. Already rising from springtime snowmelt, the river and many of its um, began to swell to record levels by the beginning of May. I meant to say many of its tributaries. Areas along the Mississippi itself experiencing flooding, including Illinois, Missouri, Kentucky, Tennessee, Arkansas, Mississippi, and Louisiana. U.S. President Barack Obama declared the western counties of Kentucky, Tennessee, and Mississippi federal disaster areas. And 14 people have been killed in Arkansas, with 340 killed across seven states in the preceding storms. Thousands of homes have been ordered evacuated, including over 1,300 in Memphis, Tennessee, more than 2,000 in the state of Mississippi. About 13% of U.S. petroleum refining output is expected to be disrupted by flood levels exceeding historical records in several locations, with gasoline futures up 9.2%. The flood is crested in Memphis on May 10th and is expected to crest in southern Louisiana by May 23rd. The Army Corps of Engineers has stated that even if spillways are open, an area in Louisiana between Simmersport and Baton Rouge may be inundated with 20 to 30 feet of water. Baton Rouge, New Orleans, and many other river towns are threatened, but officials stress that they should be able to avoid catastrophic flooding. Anyway, uh, so that's what's going on, folks. Uh, this country is continuing to get cursed because uh, collectively, as a nation, we refuse to want to obey uh, the laws of God. And I can tell you this with certainty, if the majority of us did, God would not allow any of these catastrophes to occur. Uh, it's just because we have a tendency to think that we know better than him and, and that uh, we have greater knowledge than our creator, which is ridiculous to even think. But when we start to think that way, uh, God does not take pleasure in us thinking that way, and he allows curses to occur, like the flooding, and like various other curses that have happened throughout history and that are currently happening as I'm speaking. And it's going to continue to occur until we stop thinking we know more than our Creator. And uh, Jeremiah 18, verse 17 is a popular scripture that I quote from time to time. Jeremiah 18, verse 7. This applies to any nation around the world, not just Israel. Remember, Jeremiah was a prophet to the nations, not just the nation of Israel. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 18, verse 7. 
says, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom, and I'm reading this in the English Standard Version if you're ever wondering, uh, for today anyway, if at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it, if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from his evil, so this is talking about any nation, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do to it. And, of course, in any time I declare concerning a nation and kingdom that I will build and plant it, and in other words, do good to it, and if it does evil in my sight, not listening to my voice, that's the key, not listening to his voice. How do we listen to God's voice? In most cases, it's from the Bible. Sometimes through the Holy Spirit, he speaks to you, through your conscience. But in most cases, it's through the Bible that we're going to hear his voice. And he says, uh, and if it does evil in my sight, now listen to my voice. So that's in the context of doing evil in God's sight. When you don't listen to his words, whether they're spiritually given to you, through your conscience, and you know you're doing something wrong, and your conscience is telling you not to do it, uh, that's an example of God possibly talking to you through your conscience. And you deny that. Or, of course, you read the Bible, and you say, well, I just don't believe that. Then that's being evil in his sight. He says, then I will relent of the good that I intended to do to it. So, and then there's all various curses throughout the Bible. Um, God promised uh, to to curse anyone that doesn't obey him, especially if you know what you're doing, if you know that something's wrong, because it's really not sin unless you know that you're sinning. God doesn't hold that against you, even though the penalty is still there. Uh, it's like if you didn't know that you shouldn't cross the street when cars are going back and forth and you get hit, well... <laughs> God's not going to hold that against you. You were ignorant about that, but unfortunately the damage of being run over by a car has occurred still. So, I mean, I'm just using a simple example there. But anyway, uh, let's pray for the people that are suffering in Louisiana and the Mississippi area and, and pray that God will have mercy on them. But most of all, let's pray that this nation, uh, through this president that we have, miraculously repents and we start to obey all of the commandments of God, not just pick and choose which ones we want to believe. Okay, so we're going to go over the Torah readings today as uh, the regular format of this program will be until further notice. Uh, the Torah portion, which is the first five books of the Bible right now, we're traditionally at Leviticus, and uh, I'm going to read the little summary that I read uh based on the Torah, based on the, the section from Habat.org. Uh, on the mountain of Sinai, God communicates to Moses the laws of the sabbatical year. Every seventh year, all work on the land should cease, and its produce becomes free for the taking of for all, man and beast. Now, I, I don't know of any nation that does this. If they did, the uh, poverty would be eliminated. Anyway, seven sabbatical cycles are followed by a 50th year, this is the same uh, method, methodology as the uh, the Omer count, uh, where the 50th day would be Pentecost or Shavuot. But in this particular situation, it's going by years, and the 50th year is a jubilee year, on which work on the land ceases, all indentured servants are set free, and all ancestral estates in the Holy Land that have been sold revert back to their original owners. This is a plan to eliminate poverty, folks. Bihar also contains additional laws, and this is the that's the name of the uh, Torah section today. Bihar also contains additional laws governing the sale of lands and the prohibitions against fraud and usury, which um, our very rich people around the world needs to listen to. So anyway, let's let's go over Torah, this Torah section uh, for this week, Leviticus chapter 25, starting in verse 1, all the way to Leviticus chapter 26, verse 2. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 1. Reading this in the English Standard Version for clarity's sake here. Says the Lord spoke to Moshe or Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you, the land shall keep a Shabbat or Sabbath to the Lord for six years. Six years you shall sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather in its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Shabbat of solemn rest for the land. 
a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest or gather the grapes of your undressed vine. It shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves, and for your hired servant and sojourner who lives with you. Now, I want you to understand something. The Bible definition in this context of a slave is like an employee. All right, the, the Bible way of slavery, the right way of slavery, is not the same as African slavery or Egyptian slavery uh, with the Israelites and so forth. That was uh, oppressive type of slavery. That's not the type of servitude that God wants us to have towards someone else. So anyway, um, the Sabbath of the land shall provide for you, food for you, for yourself and for your male and female slaves and for your hired servant, hired servant, there we go, and sorter who lives with you, and for your cattle, and for the wild animals that are in your land, all its yield shall be for food. So I just want you to understand, God wants us to work six years, but the seventh year, he wants us to, to take a break. Now, I'm not saying that you still don't work, it's just that your work is somewhat minimized, and, and, and the year is really focused more on, on uh, doing some things that you normally would not be able to do. Uh, because of having to work for six years. Uh, all kinds of work as far as helping people will continue, of course, during the the, uh, the seven-year Sabbath. Um, education, perhaps even more education, will be done this year because you won't have to focus so much on your normal type of occupation. Uh, a lot of things that you need to do, like take care of your body, perhaps for a whole year you can focus more on taking care of your body. Uh the Sabbath year was that's that was God's intention for it, not just the rest of the land, but also for people in general to have a, a a different type of year than the the previous six years. That's why he calls it the Sabbath year. Verse eight. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you forty nine years. Then you shall sound a loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, you shall sound a trumpet throughout all your land, and you shall consecrate the fiftieth year, proclaim liberty. And now this is interesting because this passage of scripture, I think is Leviticus 25, verse 10, is on the Liberty Bell. It's on the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. This exact passage about uh, proclaiming liberty throughout the land. So I think that's very interesting that God inspired the early people that uh, came here in America to put that scripture on the Liberty Bell. And so we as a nation should be practicing this, what I'm talking about today, uh, the Jubilee, and not just wait for the 50th year to do it. I mean, we should be having compassion and mercy to people in this country that, that are suffering right now, that are going through financial problems, especially in this economy. Please don't believe the so-called pundits and the experts that are telling you that we are in a recovery. We're not in a recovery. There's no way we can be in a recovery when we have over 15 million people that don't have jobs. There's no way we can be in a recovery when we have close to 44 million people that don't get enough food to eat according to feedingamerica.org. All the facts are there. So, former presidential candidate John Edwards stated that we would only need $20 billion, that's what it would be, $20 billion to eliminate poverty in this country. And we have plenty of billion, we have the most billionaires in any country in this country. So we, we certainly can do that. I get these letters from the CEO of Feeding America. And I eventually will write to her and ask her, do you consistently advertise to Bill Gates, to Warren Buffett, to these folks that do have the money to be able to help your organization? You know, I try to help the organization. I give 15 bucks a month. I'm not telling you this to brag. I'm just telling you what I do. 15 bucks a month is not a lot. But if everybody in America did that, and I, I believe every working American <laughs> can at least give $15 to this organization, it would make a difference. 
Right now, I think she said they need to raise 100000 or something like that. I mean, if every American gave $15 a month to this organization, that would make a difference. I think the, the average workforce right now is over 120 million people. So if they each gave $15, that would make a difference. And I'm, I'm sure most working Americans can afford $15 a month. If you can't, you, you need the, you need some serious counsel on, uh, on basic uh, money financial management. But this is the richest country in the world, folks. There's no plausible or logical reason why anyone who wants to work, who wants to accomplish things, should not have enough to eat or a decent job, what I call livable income. So anyway, uh, verse 10 of Leviticus chapter 25, And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That's beautiful law. It means that if you had to give up, if you foreclose on your home, okay, that's the way we can interpret this today. God is saying that during the 50th year, that you can reclaim that home. That's an incredible law, isn't it? But that tells you how fair he is, how fair he is, truly, uh, and how he wants you to be able to enjoy your life, not live a life of, of poverty and oppression. So it's very important to understand that. So, uh, Verse 11, the 50 of you shall be a jubilee for you, and you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grace from the undressed vines. It is a jubilee. It should be holy to you. You may eat of the produce of the field. Verse 13, and this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price, and if the years are few, you shall reduce the price. How fair is that? For it is the number of the crops that he is selling to you. You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. You fear God by keeping his commandments. You fear God by hating evil. Verse 18. Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. Okay, and this is in context of what I stated earlier. If we, as a nation, if all other nations kept God's commandments, he promised that you'll dwell in the land where you're at securely, safely. But if you don't, there will be curses, floods, earthquakes, catastrophes, murders, whatever, you know. It'll be all kinds of, of wickedness going on until eventually you'll wake up. That's how you punish adults. Verse 19, the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. Verse 20, and if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? Now, this is interesting because I, I do get some messianic saying, well, the seventh year you can still work. Uh, and so, well, why would someone state this here in verse 20? It says, and if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crop? Now, why would he, why would he even ask that question? Unless he understood during this seven year they weren't doing normal work. Because how can you eat if you don't work, folks? Eating and working, there's a correlation between the two. If you don't work, you don't eat. And if you don't eat, how can you work? It goes hand in hand, right? But anyway, verse 21, I will command, and this is the answer. And I notice the answer to this. I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year so that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. Okay? That is the answer to the question. So why is he providing three years' supply of food? Because he doesn't intend for you to work as you normally would during the six years. Does that make sense? That's, that's the only plausible explanation for that. All right? Verse 20, when you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop. You shall eat the old until the ninth year when this crop arrives. Verse 23, so God will provide 
for all your food so you don't have to work like you would normally work during the six years. So, verse 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetual, for the land is mine. Perpetuity, I'm sorry. Perpetuity. For the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it, and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance of the man to whom he sold it, and then return to his property. But if he has not sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. And a Jubilee it shall be released, and he shall return to his property. If a man sells a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within a year of his sale. For a full year he shall have the right of redemption. If it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall be long in perpetuity to the buyer throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the Jubilee. But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them shall be classified with the fields of the land. They may be redeemed and they shall be released in the Jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem it at any time the houses in the cities they possess. And if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in the city they possess shall be released in the Jubilee. For the houses in the cities of the Levites are their possession among the people of Israel, but the fields of pasture land belonging to their cities may not be sold, for that is their possession forever. Verse 35 of Leviticus chapter 25. If your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Boy, if this law was followed worldwide, there would not be any poverty at all, folks. But we know that this is not uh, the case. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him you shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you as an employee, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant or, or as an employee and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of the Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I bought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. And he's, of course, referring to slaves that or servants that are oppressed. Verse 43. And this explains the oppression. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God as your male and female slaves who you may have. You may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you, uh, after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. Verse 47, if a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich and your brother beside him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. He shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself to him until the year of Jubilee and the price of his sales shall vary with the number of years. The time he has with his owner shall be rated as the time of a hired servant or an employee. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionally for his redemption some of his sales price. If there remain but a few years into the year of Julian, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to the years of service. 
He shall treat him as a servant hired year by year. He shall not rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants and my brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Leviticus 26, verse 1. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land to bow down to it. For I, the Lord your God, I'm the Lord your God. You shall keep my Shabbat and, and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. So we'll just uh, stop there. That's uh, the Torah section. And as you can imagine, it's, it's definitely a passage that uh, focuses on uh, poverty and what you have versus uh, what you can have and and so forth. And it, it goes on to explain how uh, that process of being able to get the things that you need is, is accomplished and, and how you uh, assist uh, in making sure that people uh, get what they need and not have to suffer unnecessarily. So that's what that was about. Now, the Heftorah section or the prophet section is Jeremiah chapter 32. It's similar. Uh, you have the prophet Jeremiah purchasing land. So let's turn to Jeremiah 32, verses 6 to 17, and I'm going to read something from the uh, Jewish Publication Society, JPS Bible Commentary. Uh, it states here, the Heftorah focuses on a symbolic action performed by the prophet Jeremiah in the 10th year of King Zedekiah, 587 BCE, when the army of the Babylon, the army of the king of Babylon, was besieging Jerusalem, in other words, surrounding Jerusalem. At that time, Jeremiah was confined to a royal compound, charged with uttering a seditious oracle about the fall of Jerusalem and the exile of his king. The purpose of the prophet's action was to dramatize on the eve of the destruction the future restoration of the nation to his homeland. Accordingly, Jeremiah's purchase of the field of his cousin, Hanamel, was written down and stored against the future time when houses, fields, and vineyards shall again be purchased in the land. The legal proceedings are followed by a prayer in which the prophet struggles to comprehend the drama of hope that he has just performed. God's response addresses his concern. The public action and the private prayer constitute the two parts of the Hattorah. So let's go ahead and read this here in Jeremiah. Turn to it here. Jeremiah chapter 32. Jeremiah chapter 32, uh, starting in verse 6. So Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me. Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of, the, of, of redemption, my purchase is yours. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard, in accordance with the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, in the land of Benjamin, for the right of possession and redemption is yours. Buy it yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. And I brought the field at Anathoth from Hanamel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, seventeen shekels of silver, I signed the deed, sealed it, and got witnesses and weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy. And I gave the deed of purchase to Barak, the son of Neriah, son of Mashiach, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, and in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard. Judeans meaning uh, those in the West Bank today. I charged Barak in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. Okay, so uh, after I had given the deed of purchase to Barak, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them, O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. All right, so that describes the um, 
situation there uh, where Jeremiah did that symbolic of the fact that um, the Jews would inhabit the land and they are today. Okay, uh, let's turn to the Renewed Covenant Scripture. Let's turn to Luke. Study a little bit here about Jesus in relation to the uh, Torah readings in the Hattar. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. It says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, and as his custom, and you know, let's understand that this is, was his custom, this is what he did. And in 1 John 2, verse 6 says, We ought to follow his footsteps. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue, so what was his feet? He would go into a Jewish synagogue on a Shabbat, and he stood up to read. Verse 17, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's an allusion to... Uh, the Jubilee, and recovering of slight of sight rather to the bind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, which is the year of Jubilee. Verse 20, and, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet, and this is something that I want you to understand here, because most people don't, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. So, if there's a prophet of God, a servant of God, people, his own relatives, uh, people in his own hometown don't accept him. They don't accept him, and neither did they accept Jesus. So no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Verse 25, but in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And I want you to understand something here. He's saying that this great prophet Elijah, one of the greatest prophets that ever lived, in this situation where there was three and a half years of famine, which is symbolic of the tribulation, uh, he went and visited a widow. A widow. Okay? And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elijah, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. So, of course, they get angry when people get angry when they don't want to hear the truth. Hold your place here. I want to read something to you here in John chapter 8. You need to understand, we, we all are conditioned to not want to know the truth. And for you to get that out of your brains, you have to embrace the truth. What is the truth? The truth is God's teachings, his law. Uh, Psalm 119, verse 142, if you care to just study that scripture, go ahead. It tells you what the truth is. All right, uh, in John chapter 8. Now, Jesus tried to explain to them why they were acting the way they were acting, but they didn't want to listen. Uh, John chapter 8 John chapter 8, starting in verse 19. He was having, uh, well, many people don't seem to understand, Jesus had debates, not because he wanted to, but because the people were challenging his uh, authority. And, and they didn't like what he was saying. So he would have debates with them because of that. But anyway, uh, John chapter 8, starting in verse uh, 19. Um, they said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him 
because his hour had not yet come. So I want you to realize that he regularly taught in the, in the Jewish synagogue. That's where we get the concept of church. We get it from the Jewish synagogue. We get it from the Jewish synagogue. And the church is just someone's way of interpreting what the Jews even do today. They they attend synagogue. Uh, but they leave the Jewishness out of it, and they just want to uh, do it without the Jewishness. And that's not the way God wants things. Uh, he wants us to be able to worship him in spirit and in truth. Uh, Yeshua is the truth, and Yeshua, or Jesus, is a Jew. And any Jewish tradition that he observed, we should as well. And one of the traditions was for him to go into an assembly of people, which in his case was a synagogue, and teach there and fellowship with them. And if we can, if we can meet like-minded individuals that want to believe all the words of the Bible and don't believe that the Sabbath done away with, etc., then, yeah, it's appropriate to fellowship with them. Verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasure as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 21. So he said to them, I am going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. So he's talking about going back to heaven. So the Jews said, will he kill himself since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come? He said to them, you are from below. I am from above. So he's making a, a, a dichotomy here, a distinction. Okay, You are from a, below. I am from above. You are of this world. I am not of the world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So this is... <laughs> It's pretty serious, folks. I mean, what he's saying is that if you don't believe him, and really the way you you prove to anybody you believe him, you do what they tell you to do. Okay, uh, the false concept of all I got to do is believe that Yeshua is the Messiah and I'm okay. No, you're gonna not only have to believe, you're also gonna have to do. Faith must have works. Yeshua's half brother stated that. Okay, um, James, read James chapter two. It's very illuminating. All right. Verse 25, so they said to him, who are you? Jesus said to them, just what I have been telling you from the beginning. They weren't listening. Verse 26, I have much to say about you and much to judge, but he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. So the Father taught him to teach us. Verse 27, they did not understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. So they didn't understand that. Verse 28. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. And that's what we need to do. We need to do the things that are always pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, now notice, he said to the Jews who had believed in him, <laughs> notice that, he, he said to the Jews who had believed in him, not to the ones that didn't, okay, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You have to abide in his word, folks. If you read any of the Gospels and you disagree with anything that is stated, then you don't abide in his word, folks. If you think the Old Testament is done away, which he said emphatically and clearly in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 19, that it is not. He did not come to destroy the prophets. In other words, Moses is a prophet. He did not come to destroy Moses. So if he didn't come to destroy Moses, folks, Moses should still be kept to the best of your ability. That's what he's telling you. All right? Uh, John 8. John Verse 31, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That's true liberty, folks. That's what kind of liberty that God is talking about. He's not talking about liberty to do what you want. I got my own opinion. I'm going to do what I want. I'm gonna, I just want to do it. No, God, God is not, he doesn't want you to have that type of liberty. Okay, the kind of liberty that he's talking about is liberty from curses. Liberty from eternal death. 
Liberty from oppression. Liberty from sickness. Liberty from disease. That's the type of liberty that he's talking about. That we ought to grasp. People get that mixed up. Especially in this country today. Uh, We have all kinds of liberties. Too many, I, I believe. To the point of where we sin like crazy. We're the fattest nation in, the, in probably in history, okay? God calls us Jezreel, wax fat in Deuteronomy chapter 32. That tells you who we are. Because there's, no there's no other peoples on the earth that is as rich as as fat as we are, okay? And, and Deuteronomy chapter 32 identifies that the United States is definitely a part of Israel. There's no other nation on this earth that's as fat and rich as we are. None. Okay? And, and then in, in Britain, same thing. You have fat people all over the place there. Now, I'm not, you know, I'm just t- talking fat here. They fat. Okay? If there's another word that you want me to use, I will. But they're overweight, fat. Fat means overweight. I'm not making fun of them. It's the truth. And God said they wax fat. So if you want to have a problem with that, you talk to him about it. He calls our people, the majority of us, fat, overweight. And statistics prove that we are. And a majority of us are just lazy, don't want to exercise, don't want to take care of ourselves. We just want to lay back with a beer and a pizza and look at football. We can't have that kind of life. It's okay to do that occasionally, but not to the point of destroying your body. It's a sin to destroy your body. You must take care of the temple, as God states in his word. If you don't take care of the temple, God states he will destroy you. And he's not going to destroy you uh, just say, oh, die. He's going to destroy you by the fact that you aren't taking care of yourself. So there's a law in place of the many of these created where if you don't take care of yourself, your body is destroyed. You're, you're actually destroying your own body when you're eating the wrong types of foods, uh, when, when you don't exercise. You destroy yourself. But God, of course, allows it. Okay. So, getting back to this, uh, the truth will set you free, free from oppression, free from poverty, free from sicknesses and diseases, free, ultimately, from eternal death. You have eternal life. Verse 33, they answered him, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Verse 34, Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. That's what we need to not have servitude to, to sin. Sin causes death. Sin causes poverty in a lot of cases. Oppression, disease, eternal death. Verse 35, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me. And I want you to notice this, folks. Wake up and notice this. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, or it should be called murder, because my word finds no place in you. Now, hold your place here. Let me elaborate on this. Many people think that God's words are boring. You know, um, they fall asleep. And I can confidently tell you that when you do that, the Word is not finding a place in you. However, when you look at tennis or when you do other things that you like, what they say or what they do finds its place in you. All right? So desire is a very interesting emotion of mankind. And desire is an amazing thing because I have not met one human being that if they truly want to do something, they don't let anything or anyone, any situation stop them. That's the same type of attitude that God wants you to have toward him. He even in Ezekiel chapter 3 talks about his word being as sweet as honey. 
the words to me are as sweet as honey. Now, can you actually say that? Just think, as God's words to you as sweet as honey? If they're not, you've got a ways to go before you can truly say you are a believer of God. We believe through our actions of television programs, movies, uh, sporting events, other activities, or if you're addicted to drugs or sex or whatever, those are things that we are in belief more through our actions than God himself. And that's what he's trying to point out here. So, Make sure that God's words find a place in you, in your mind. Because if they don't, then you start to have the attitude of the devil. Verse 38, I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So he's really getting specific here. What father? And many people don't realize that the devil is a father too. Okay? Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if Abraham was your children. You will be doing the works of Abraham. Abraham was a man of hospitality. He invited people into his home. He gave the people. He was a great giver. That's what Abraham was. That's why God talks about him with high esteem and respect. There's nothing wrong with a father respecting their, their son. A lot of fathers don't seem to understand that. But you should respect your son. Not like you would respect your father. But you still should respect. What do I mean by respect? I'm talking about you should acknowledge your son's accomplishments. You should acknowledge when your son does something right. You should acknowledge when your son is struggling and doing the best he can. You should step in and help. Now, you do have some sons that are lazy, don't want to do nothing. You don't help them in that situation. What you do is preach to them and tell them, look, I'm not going to help you until you show me and give me evidence. I'm talking about adult sons, you know. Show me evidence and proof you're trying to do something with yourself. And then I'll help you. But if they're going to lay around, get drunk, have sex, get on drugs, and, and, and don't do anything, don't want to get a job, not trying to find a job, then you're only going to hurt them by not helping them. How are you helping somebody if they're not, they don't want to help themselves? But if you know that your son is doing all he can to help himself and can prove it, and you still don't help him. That is a great sin, and God will hold any father accountable to that with all kinds of curses. And that individual will not be happy, even though he tries to make everybody else think that he is. He won't be. Anyway, um, so in verse 38, oh, okay, where are we at here? Verse 40, but now you seek to kill me or murder him, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Now, these are, these are all his own people, folks. These are Jews. And many of these Jews in this context hate the truth. They did not want to hear it. And he said he heard this from God, his father. This is not what Abraham did. Abraham had that attitude. He listened to the Father. And that's why he's so blessed. We'll be blessed more in the future. Verse 41, you are doing the works your father did. Now, he's, he's talking about another father. So it's definitely not Abraham, folks. <laughs> they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. Now, they're really slandering him now. They, they, his own people was saying that he was born of sexual immorality, and that was not true. How dare they say something like that? And they were lucky that they weren't incinerated just by saying that. You know, but uh says, we have one father, even God. So there was a rumor going around back then that he, you know, <laughs> that he was born of sexual immorality. Okay. Verse 44, you are of your father, the devil. Now, he's being direct now. He's telling them that their father's the devil. And look. If you don't love the truth, you want to get out there and sin, don't believe what I'm telling you, and, and, and you, you know, and anybody, not just me, anybody that's preaching out the word and you know it's true, then you are of your father the devil. That's what he's saying. Okay? 
Uh, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Here we go with desires again. Now, here's the dichotomy of the moment. We all got fathers. We should all have a spiritual father that we all obey. We also have an anti-father, a demonic father called the devil. When we sin, we're doing his will. And of course we have an earthly father. All of us do, whether or not that father's still alive or not. We've all had fathers. And we don't obey those fathers, those earthly fathers, unless they obey God. If they tell you something evil and wicked to do, then, of course, you don't obey them. Now, if they tell you something that is in line with God's commandments, you do obey them. All right, so. So he says right here, uh, you're doing a... You are doing the works of your father. They said to him, we were not born in sexual immorality. Verse 42, Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. Okay? I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you do not, why do you not understand what I say? Now, in verse 43, he says, how come you don't understand me? Now, if you don't understand what I'm saying, you need to be asking yourself that question right now. Okay, And he says, why do you not understand what I say? Now, here's the answer. It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. If you can't bear to hear what I'm saying, then you won't understand. If you run away from the truth, you're not going to understand the truth. How can you understand something you're running away from? It's impossible. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. We got desire, folks. The question is, are we going to do the father in heaven's desires or the father on this earth, the demon that's going around trying to kill people as I'm speaking and doing it, desires? And he kills people through uh, causing weather disturbances. God allows him to do that. He possesses people. He has servants that he uses to possess people to do wickedness. And he doesn't have to possess people to do his dirty work. He uh, also influences people, puts evil thoughts in their minds, and people don't know where it's coming from. They do silly stuff. That's what he does. He's the prince of the power of the air, as Ephesians chapter 2 tells you. Hey, what's your place here? Let's turn to that. Ephesians. Ephesians. Starting in verse 1, and you were dead in the transgressions and sins in which you once walked. And this is talking about people that are keeping the, the, the laws of God to the best of their ability. In which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. So he has power over the atmosphere. Folks, that's what your Bible says. He has, He's... He has some kind of power over the air. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires, here we go again, the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. The majority of mankind, first, uh, folks, are the children of wrath by nature. And they carry out, the, their whole life is about carrying out the desires of their body and their mind. So much so that they forget about God. There's nothing wrong with carrying out rightful and fruitful desires of the body and mind. But it's wrong when that is so much more important than carrying out the desires of what God wants us to do. And the devil he has great power over the air. He broadcasts his evil attitudes into people's minds that aren't aware of what he can do. So anyway, John chapter 8. And 
And he states here in verse 44, You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. The beginning of what? The beginning of the creation of the universe. He was a murderer from the beginning. So God has told us that as soon as the Lucifer was created, he started rebelling from the beginning. I, I, I hear people say it may have taken millions of years. No, not according to what this scripture says. It says that he was a murderer from the beginning. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So he was a murderer from that beginning. That's what the that's what your, your Lord and Savior is telling you here about the devil. And has nothing to do with the truth because there's no truth in him. In other words, he mixes truth and error. So if you mix truth and error, how can it be truth in you? When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and he's the father of lies. He created the concept of lying. What is lying, folks? Not telling the truth or not telling the whole truth when you know the whole truth. And that's something that most people struggle with. I took this one marketing course and it stated that 91% of people lie. That means 9% of people in this world don't intentionally lie. That's sad. That's really sad. Verse 46, which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Now, verse 47, whoever is of God hears the words of God. So if you are of God, you're not going to fall asleep during a Bible study unless the guy is not preaching the truth. I would fall asleep on that. If someone is not making sense, I would be falling asleep really good. Okay, But if they're making sense, if you know what they're telling you is true, then our Lord and Savior is saying is that you're not of God if you're going to get bored about that. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. That's what he says. So if you have a problem with that, you need to go talk to him. I didn't make the laws and regulations. All, all I do, my job is to tell you what he says. My job is not to get you to desire his words. Is not to um, force you to do that. That's something that you're going to have to work out. You're going to have to figure out why you have a tendency to fall asleep, any of you, if you fall asleep, or have a tendency not to, to take seriously God's words. All I am is an instrument. I'm just reading the words. It's up to you to believe those words and be desired to keep them. You know, preaching is not an entertainment vehicle, folks. Uh, I know in, in, in American society, we love our movies, and we love to be entertained. But when you go to school and you take a course, it's not entertainment, is it? I mean, when you take a marketing course or a chemistry course, and you know, the teacher's not entertaining you in most cases. You're sitting there learning something that hopefully you can apply to make a decent income, to make livable income. Well, God wants you to sit and pay attention to him to learn how to have eternal life. You know, that is even much more important than learning how to make livable income. And people fall asleep on that because it's not in their entertainment mode that the devil has successfully deceived most people into being in tune to So anyway, let's turn back to uh, John chapter 4. John chapter 4. I'm sorry, Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. All right, so in verse 28, I stopped there. It says, when they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. So I wanted to explain to you why they were filled with wrath, because they didn't want to hear the truth. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the broad of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. So they wanted to throw him down the cliff because they hated what he said so bad. This is his own people. Okay, not all of them, but a vast majority of them didn't want to hear what he had to say. But passing through their midst, he went away. 
So he miraculously passed through their midst. Now, the Jewish uh, New Testament commentary here, I just wanted to elaborate on these scriptures here. Uh, David Stern states here, he says, Shabbat, he went to the synagogue as usual like any good Jew. He stood up to read publicly from a scroll. Now, you know, back then they didn't have books, they had scrolls. The custom in the synagogue now is to read through the Torah, the Pentateuch, uh, that's what it's called, most Christians call it that, uh, each year with portions of several chapters read on Monday, Thursday, and Shabbat mornings. And that's what I'm doing right now. I'm reading the Torah portions, including, of course, the Renewed Covenant. Uh, Orthodox Jews or Jews that don't believe in Messiah, uh, that Messiah Jesus don't read the Renewed Covenant, but uh, Jewish believers do, and Gentile believers. Uh, it says Thursday and Shabbat mornings, ending and beginning over again with Samkat, Simchat Torah, the rejoicing of the Torah, which comes at the end of Sukkot. At an earlier stage in Jewish history, three years was taken to read through the Torah. And some uh, Messianic congregations do, they do three years instead of doing the way I'm doing it. There is a second reading called Hatar, the conclusion. Um, it consists in portions from the prophets and writings related to Parashit Hashuvah, Torah portion for the week. While there is uncertainty over exactly what the first century customs were, it seems clear that if Yeshua was given the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, he was being offered the Hatorah reading. Since there is uncertainty about the practice of the time, it is not clear whether he found a place set by the lectionary for the Shabbat or the place he himself chose or the place where the scroll happened to open. Uh, this commentary is based on uh, verses 18 and 21. This is significant because I wanted to point this out. Verses 18 to 19 quote from Isaiah 61 verses 1 to 2. But do not include the immediately following words and the day of vengeance of our God. The reason why he didn't read that because it wasn't his time to, to execute vengeance of our God. Although normally a citation of scripture implies the surrounding context, here Yeshua may have stopped short so that he can say today, as you have heard it read, this passage of Tanakh, Tanakh is another word for the Old Testament, uh, to but not including the day of vengeance was fulfilled as described in uh, uh uh, chapter 7, verses 20 to 23, Matthew 11, verses 2 to 6. For at his first coming, he healed and brought good news of the kingdom and salvation. It was not his time to take vengeance or judge. Okay, so I just wanted to describe that to you, and we understand that his first coming was to be somewhat of a jubilee type of experience where he would help the poor and the lame, the oppressed, and give advice to people who were oppressed. His second coming will be also the same, it'll be a, uh, but it will be a worldwide experience. This won't be just an individual experience. So that's what the gospel is all about, is about helping people and caring about people. That's what it's all about, folks. So um, I think that's all for this week, uh, basically, uh, have 26 minutes left if anyone wants to call in and say anything. If not, then I'll just uh, end the show here, and um, I'll speak to you next week. So I'll give uh, anyone a few minutes to call if you want. And other than, other than what I just told you about what's going on in Mississippi, uh, we're still going through a bunch of chaos here in reference to the economy. Uh, we need to cut back. Uh, we need to not spend things that we can't afford. Uh, we need to do all those things. So uh, and stay close to God. And if any of you have any other questions or concerns about what I'm teaching, um, kindly email me at canard, K-E-N-N-A-R-D, at mercifulservants.com. That's canard at mercifulservantsofgod.com. Again, that's canard at mercifulservantsofgod.com. You also can look at my website. It's www.mercifulservantsofgod.com. Okay, it looks like no one wants to uh, say anything. Well, um, hey, hope uh, God blesses and keeps you and protects you, and uh, I will, God willing, speak to you all next week. Malachi chapter 4. For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts. 
that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. And ye shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. <laughs> 